Amen. You can have a seat. Unless you're a fourth or a fifth grader, we're going to send uh, you all out through that door right now. You can meet your kids ministry leaders out there if you're a fourth and fifth grader. Uh, if you're not a fourth and fifth grader, you're going to stay right here. Um, as Ben said, my name is Scott Pontier. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I'm excited uh, to continue preaching this series that we've called our, My Brother's Keeper. Um, and one of the things that um, I noticed just kind of like in the news last week um, Lori Lightfoot became the first mayor of Chicago in over 40 years to lose a re-election campaign. Uh, that's interesting. If you're a mayor in there, you got a pretty good job security, it sounds like. But for her, uh, she got kicked out, right? And the number one reason people talked uh, about voting differently and, and kicking her out was um, crime, Crime was the problem in Chicago. It's out of control in Chicago, they said. Our leader doesn't know how to do the right things to fix it. So just curious, what would you do if you were the mayor of Chicago? How would you fix crime in your city? Um, you can just write that on a connect card, give it to me after the service, just take an ideas, right? Um, one of the answers that I think most people give is, well, we gotta figure out how to put more people in jail, we got to punish people who are committing crimes so that that doesn't happen anymore, right? Uh, I get it, because what else are we supposed to do when people break laws and do wrong things? But as I read that story, I kind of had that thought, and I was thinking about it, and I kind of had a moment of self-reflection, and I went, wow, I go real quick to punishment, don't I? I wonder why that is. I wonder why we move quickly to punishment when things go wrong. Why is that a response? We're kind of fascinated with punishment as a people. How do we punish people the right way uh, at, at the right times? Uh, and the question for me is like, I wonder why we're so, we're much more interested in punishing wrongdoing than restoring, rehabilitating people. And I ask that question because as we're in this series wrestling with a question, am I my brother's keeper? Uh, I think it's far easier to think about that question about loving my neighbor, about being my brother's keeper from the positive perspective, right? How do I be a good person to other people? It's a pretty positive perspective. I could stand to be a little bit better at being a good person to other people, things like that. But what if things go wrong? What happens when we have to ask, am I my brother's keeper when my brother is in the wrong, when my brother is doing the wrong things, when he hurt me, when she left me, when something in the relationship is, uh, is broken, right? What do I do then? And so I think inside of the question, am I my brother's keeper, are all kinds of other questions about how we think about things like unfairness or righteousness and punishment. And that's the conversation we're going to have a little bit today. We're going to move past the flood, the Noah's Ark story uh, that happened in Genesis chapter 7 and 8. Um, and today we're going to look at one weird little story in Genesis chapter 9 and then one list of names because Genesis is full of those. Uh, and I think those two things, that weird little story and that list of names, will engage us in this conversation about punishment and loving our neighbor and brokenness in, in a completely different way. So if you're a person who follows along in your Bible, we're going to be in Genesis chapters 9 and 10 today. Uh, I'll have it up on the screen as well when we get to it. 
Uh, but just to catch us up, Genesis 7 and 8 contain probably one of the most famous Bible stories uh, around. It's the story of the flood and Noah's Ark. Uh, and we're going to move beyond that story today. But the beginning of our story actually starts at the end of that story, right? It starts with the closing on the whole flood narrative. And the author who's writing this down reminds us one more time what the whole point of the flood was. And he does so by, I think, reminding us of Genesis chapter one, all the way back in the beginning. In Genesis chapter one, we read that the earth was formless and empty. It was chaotic, right? And there's this chaotic mass of water uh, that makes the cosmos inhabitable. And in Genesis chapter one, we see that God shows up and he starts putting everything together in the right way. He makes order out of that chaos and now life can happen. With the flood, God undoes that work, interestingly. God reintroduces that chaos into the world. And as we've seen in Genesis, he does so because at that moment, that is the only way to deal with us because we have gotten unorderly and chaotic and problematic in our humanity. And since we've been doing that, God uh, unleashes the chaos once again, and then God starts over just like he did in Genesis chapter one. So Genesis chapter nine opens like this with God talking to Noah. Then God blessed Noah and his sons saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and on all the birds in the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground and on all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I gave you, I now give you everything. Does that sound familiar in our Genesis story? It's almost an exact recreation of the charge God gives to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter one. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that is fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. So the author of Genesis is just mirroring these stories for us. Noah becomes the new Adam. God starts over, not because, or God starts over because we have this predilection to keep choosing ourselves over him in these early stories. So he reintroduces chaos to reinstate order. Not as a punishment, but as a salvation. That was our story last week. That 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 moment is about restoration of humanity to God. But this time, you know, God's starting to change his strategy a little bit. There's no more warfare in his creation. He hangs the rainbow in the sky saying, I'm gonna hang up my bow. I'm no longer doing warfare. I've got a new strategy of restoration. And we're going to get to that particular strategy in a couple of weeks in a new miniseries uh, in Genesis chapter 12 that's based on Abraham. Abraham is God's new plan for how he relates and restores humanity. And so this new creation moment, the end of the flood, is important because it tells us something about God. It tells us that God does not simply abandon his creation. After all the problems we're we're causing with each other and with him, God is still invested in restoration of humanity. Now, 
we live in a community. There's plenty of churches around. One of the things I tend to notice is signs on churches. So maybe you've seen a church sign kind of like this one, right? Uh, get right or get left. Or maybe the next one, right? I've seen this one before too. Turn or burn, right? Ship, shape up or ship out. It's clever. It's witty. But I think it's a huge distortion of the character of God that is present in Genesis. Get right or get left is not the God of Genesis. Genesis continues to tell the story of a God who acts in the opposite manner of turn or you're going to burn. It's a God that won't abandon his creation because of brokenness, because of sin, because of choices. He doesn't abandon Because God's not simply interested in punishment of the brokenness. Even after the whole thing falls apart, our God is a God who says, let's give this another try. So we have to keep that in mind as we read through Genesis and what comes next. Because before we turn our attention to Father Abraham and all of his many sons and everything that happens there, we have this weird little story and a list of names. So Genesis chapter nine, let's get to that story. With all of that in mind, the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. If you're a real Hebrew speaker, you might call them Ham, but I'm not gonna do that because it's just gonna screw me up through the whole thing, right? So Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. God's starting again, these three guys from Noah. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and he lay uncovered in his tent. He was naked. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw that his father was naked and he told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders and they walked backwards as they covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done uh, done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. That is a weird story. Bible's full of weird stories. This is one of them. I have so many questions. So Noah gets hammered, but Ham gets in trouble. That's weird. Why is that happening, Right? And it seems like the punishment does not fit the crime. Uh, Is this an over-the-top kind of response to this moment of indecency? And more importantly, this story for me is all about like, here's these three brothers and one of them has a kid? We keep bringing up Canaan and he's the guy that gets the brunt of the curse. That guy didn't do anything, right? Why do we include Canaan? Why do we doom his uh, descendants to a life of slavery to the others? The Bible is so weird. (laughs) But it might help if we have some context to answer these questions. So let's reset our thinking about the Bible, particularly about the Torah, right? The Torah is these first five books of the Bible, Um, They are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And the Torah is the story of God's people. And when the story was written down was at a time where these people were recovering from a national tragedy. 
They're seeking to recover from this exile that they had uh, it, it, uh, where the, the whole uh, faith, the whole people, all their leaders, it was just torn down. And so they were taken into exile. They were destroyed. As they rebuild, they're trying to make sense of it all. How did we get to this position? How do we, how do we make sure we don't end up in a place like this again? And so that was their purpose for writing down the stories in the Torah. They said, these stories, the way we tell these stories to each other will keep us from getting here again. So that means every single story that takes place in Genesis is told from a later point of view. Genesis is a book of beginnings. How do the stories of our beginnings explain where we are and who we are today? And if you are Israel at the time of this writing, you have enemies in the world, right? You have nations that you have been at war with. You have nations that have taken you into exile. So how do we as Israel describe our enemies in this story and how they became our enemy? Well, because of Ham, believe it or not. Now let's look at our list of names, Genesis chapter 10. The sons of Ham were Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on the earth. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Uruk, Akkad, Kalneh, and Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin, which is between Nineveh and Kala, which is the great city. Later, the Canaanite clans scattered and the borders of Canaan reached from Sidon toward Gerar as far as Gaza and then toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and I don't even know how to say that one, right? But here's the thing I want you to know. This is a list of names, right? And I bet you recognized a few as we went through it because this is basically a laundry list of all the bad guys in the Bible, right? It's Egypt, It's Assyrians, it's Babylonians, and of course, Canaanites. Anytime people, uh, the Israelites had trouble in the Bible with another nation, it's one of these guys. The Canaanites were this perpetual thorn in the side of Israel. After they overcame the Egyptians, the Israelites had to conquer the Canaanites in order to take their promised land. And so this weird little story in chapter nine and this short list of names actually tells us why they are the bad guys. Why are these people our enemies throughout our history? Because God cursed them, right? Because Canaan's father, Ham, saw his father naked. And instead of helping or, or having a sense of propriety, he told his brothers about it. They covered him up, but Ham had no shame. He's just this brute, just like our enemies, the Canaanites, just like our enemies, the Egyptians, just like our enemies, the Assyrians. And now we know why they are the way they are, because they are descendant of Ham and God cursed them. Now remember, Israel at this moment of telling this story is a group of people who are desperate to remember that they are God's chosen people. So they tell the stories in a way that reminds them of who they are and to explain why their hated enemies got everything they deserved. 
they tell themselves a story about why it was okay that they violently drove out these enemies from their homeland and occupied it. They tell themselves a story why it was okay that they conquered these other people. Isn't that interesting? Because you and I do that too, don't we? We tell a story of American manifest destiny about why it's okay to kick native people off of uh, the American continent because us white Europeans deserve it. We tell our stories of, we tell ourselves a story of, uh, of, of slavery, of black Africans who are not fully human or cursed by God. And so it's okay for them to be enslaved by us. Or what about today? We tell ourselves a story about the other political party and how they are destroying our country and why it's okay for us to destroy them. We do it personally too. We tell our, ourselves a story about why our coworkers or our family members or our exes deserve the kind of treatment that we want to give to them. In fact, if you think about it, there's a, probably a person or a people, there is a name in your head that you could say, yeah, I do tell myself a story about them. So this weird little story between the flood and Abraham, but it asks us a really powerful question. And the question is, what is the story that you tell about your enemies? And why are you telling it? I want us to see that the story that we tell about our enemies, about our others, is a different story than God tells. Because the God that we saw at the end of the flood is a God who doesn't give up on restoration, right? So after the Israelites write down the Torah and they use this as a guide, their story obviously continues. There's more in our Old Testament. And eventually we come back to one of those enemies from Genesis chapter 10. All the way into the story of Jonah, we revisit the descendants of Ham again in the nation of Assyria, whose capital is Nineveh. Jonah chapter one says this, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amite, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because of the wicked, its wickedness has come up before me. Assyrians are still our enemies, aren't they? Right? Go to Nineveh, their capital city, because they're still the bad guys. And Nineveh is one of these great cities of Assyria founded by Nimrod, son of Cush, son of Ham, right? Lists of names in the Bible matter. They tell us a story. So Jonah's story does not tell us specifically what their wickedness was. I honestly don't think we have to know because you already know everything you need to know about these people. You know that Nineveh, capital of Assyria, are the bad guys. They are sons of Ham and that is all we need to know. That's the story we tell ourselves about these people that they deserve what's coming to them. So in Jonah chapter one, God says, go talk to the descendants of Ham. Tell them about me. Jonah chapter two tells us that he runs away instead, gets swallowed by a great fish. And we have that story all because he's like, I don't wanna go to those people. They are the enemies. Jonah chapter three tells us this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And so he finally goes, he relents. And guess what? 
totally works. Jonah chapter three continues. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed in all of them from the greatest to the the least put on sackcloth. And when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, he took off his royal robes and he covered himself in sackcloth and sat in the dust. He repented. Jonah tells the bad guys about God and they totally repent. The king himself turns towards the Lord and the entire kingdom does the same thing. Remember what we learned from the flood. God is always pursuing us. God is always seeking to restore, to put the chaos back together, to right what was wrong to start a new creation out of the old when the old has gone off the rails. God is always moving towards restoration. But not just for us, not just for Israel, but also for Israel's enemies, for the sons of Ham, for the Assyrians. So Jonah learns about this, this beautiful and gracious character of God and we see his response in the very next chapter. Jonah chapter four, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. That's not what I expected. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I didn't want to come here. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life for it is better for me to die than to live. That's a bit dramatic. Kill me, Lord, because you are compassionate to my enemies. I can almost hear Jonah say, I may be my brother's keeper, but not theirs. Not my enemies. Not these Ninevites, not these Assyrians, not these sons of Ham. They were cursed by you, so I don't need to take care of them. It actually reminds me of a story that Jesus told uh, in in Luke chapter 15 about a father and a son. And in that story, the son totally rejects his family and his father in particular. And he leaves and he goes to focus his entire life on himself, on his own happiness, on his own desires. And it doesn't work out. When his life becomes ruined, uh, he returns home to beg forgiveness from his father. But before the words even come out of his mouth, the father embraces his son. He dresses him in fine clothes. He kills the best animal to have a feast and they throw a party for him. That is the father's response to sons that get it wrong. To restore them to the family. But the son has a brother in the story. And the brother's response sounds really familiar to Jonah. Luke 15, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I have been slaving for you. I have never disobeyed your orders. I'm the good one. I do it right. I followed the law. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not my brother, has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My father, the, or my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, not the son of mine, 
This brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. So the core question we're asking in this series has been, am I my brother's keeper? And the easy answer is yes, of course. But I think this question is far deeper than that. It's about our personal and our moral responsibility to love our neighbors, but it's also about our response when God loves our enemies. When God restores our enemies, do we get angry? Do we relate to Jonah? Do we act like the older brother? This isn't fair. I've done it right. They did it wrong. It is true that God will not abandon you because of your own brokenness, but neither will he abandon your enemies. And so as you're hearing this kind of truth about who God is and listening to how this weird little story in chapter nine and this list of names in chapter 10 tell us about this bigger story of God, you might be in in one of two places today. First of all, you might be someone who feels like, I kind of identify with the enemies of God in the story. That's who I feel like. I've never done it right. I don't fit in with his people. Perhaps you've come to view yourself as wrong or outside of God's grace. You're from the wrong genealogy. I want you today, if that's you, if that's a place that you feel today, I want you to clearly understand who God is that God has compassion for you, that God wants to restore you, that God wants to embrace you and bring you back into his family, no matter what. That is the character of God that Jesus talks about. It's the character of God who created the world and everywhere in between throughout the entirety of the story of the Bible is that God loves you, that God pursues you and he has compassion for you and wants to restore you. Second, you might not be a person who identifies like that, but you might be a person who identifies to say, I feel like I am one of God's people. You've worked hard to do the right things, maybe. You've obeyed the rules. You've dealt appropriately with your naked, drunken father, right? So if that's you today, I wanna ask you a few questions. The first one is, who is your enemy? Who is the person? Who, what is the name that shows up because they are on the other side of whatever from you? They are the one who keeps doing it wrong. They are the one who hurt you. They are the one who deserves it. Who is that person? Maybe you've never labeled them as enemy, but the scriptures do. So my second question is, what story do you tell yourself about them? about the other side, about the other brother? What's the story you tell about them? How do you feel when God wants to restore them, when God wants to love them? How does it feel to know that God loves your enemy in the same way he loves you? These are really important questions that we, as followers of Jesus, have to wrestle with because we tend to be far more interested in punishment than restoration, but God isn't. We're fascinated by punishment, I think, because it's easier to punish than it is to love. And Jesus did not ask us to punish our enemies, did he? You have heard that it was said, 
you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. And listen, at a time in our culture where your list of enemies can grow longer every single day, I think it's a lot easier to talk about, to preach about who's doing it wrong out there. It's a lot harder to talk about, to preach about praying for those people who are doing that to you, who are persecuting you, who are hurting you. But that's what Jesus does. That's who Jesus is. That is the model we've been called to follow. God is compassionate to your enemy. God is compassionate to the other side. Are you? So with that challenge in mind, that's going to be a really easy one to go like, ooh, yeah, that's a challenge. Let me go figure that out, right? I want to give you some practical ways to figure that out, mostly because I don't want to let you off the hook, right? Uh, You should do something with the words that we hear from the scripture. Uh, And so here are four things that I think can help us enter into Jesus' call to love our enemies. Number one, really simple. You can greet them. Greet your enemies, Uh, One part of loving our our neighbors is to greet them graciously when we see them. Sometimes we turn our whole body away so that we don't have to face someone who has hurt us. It's normal. I get that. We look the other way. We duck into a different aisle in the grocery store. We cross to the other side of the street. We ignore the phone call. All to just keep from acknowledging or greeting those who have hurt us. But part of our loving our, our enemies is to greet our neighbors instead of avoiding them. It's simple and it's really challenging. So that's the first one. The second one is this, do good to them. Whoever goes in that category of enemy for you, whatever name shows up, uh, it's fascinating that whenever Jesus says, love your enemies, he follows it up almost immediately by saying, do good to them. As if just like a feeling about them isn't enough. He's like, you gotta actually act on that. Otherwise you miss the whole point. Doing good to our enemies means seeing them as people made in the image of God and understanding that there is something inside of them that is broken, that causes them to live the way they do, that causes God to want to restore them. And so to do good to our enemies means we make the first move. We send the email, we pick up the phone, we make the contact, we bridge the gap. Part of what it means to follow God is it means that we commit to taking a step towards the brokenness, not running away from it. And we trust God with the restoration. These are not easy homework assignments. Number three, uh, refuse to speak evil of our enemies. I think that's what Jesus meant when he says, bless those who curse you. I'm increasingly sort of captivated with this thought that forgiveness in many cases is not possible because we won't stop talking about it. We won't stop telling our version of that story. And as long as we talk over and over again about how they have hurt us, we'll never ever find the strength to forgive. At some point, we just gotta stop talking our way to being correct, start listening our way back to restoration. So refuse to speak evil of the enemy. And then the final one is the one that we can do when we don't even have it in us is we can ask God to bless them. There's a story about a German pastor when he was arrested by the Nazis in World War II that he prayed every single day from his prison cell for his captors. 
And the other prisoners thought this is crazy and they asked him why he would pray for these people. And he says, do you know anyone who needs your prayers more than your enemies? When you cannot, for whatever reason, bless them, ask God to. When you hate the person you are praying for, tell that to God. He is not surprised to hear you say, Lord, I hate this person, but you already know that. Can you love this person through me because I can't do it on my own? So we can greet them. We can do good to them. We can refuse to speak evil of them and we can ask God to bless them. We may be fascinated with punishment and get side reeled because that's just easier than restoring and restoration. It's easier than forgiving. It's way easier than loving our enemies. But if God is always moving towards restoration, and if he's always doing that with us, he's moving our enemies to restoration too. So be careful about the stories you tell about yourself about others because God's likely telling a whole different story. If we believe Jesus at all, then we must say to our enemies, I love you. I would rather die than hate you. But it takes work and it takes a recognition that God is so much bigger than we are. So I'm gonna close in prayer here in a moment. And as we do so, I just wanna offer you the space in prayer. As difficult as it might be for you, to hold that name before the Lord. We'll just start right away with the fourth thing we can do. Just hold them in your mind as we go before the Lord in prayer. Let's do that now. Lord God, I I confess to you that it is much easier to tell myself a story about someone who's hurt me, about this person in my head, Uh, than it is for me to see them as you see them. And so God, with this person in my head, these people that we have in our heads, these names we might be thinking of, Lord, we do offer them to you today because loving them goes beyond our own strength. We recognize that we have spoken ill of them, that we have not done good to them, that we have not greeted them. God, that we have hidden from restoration like Adam and Eve in the garden, maybe because we were ashamed or Lord, most likely because it's just hurtful. But God, we believe that you are a God who moves towards restoration when we don't. So Lord, we ask you, we beg of you to help us move towards restoration, to help us move towards holiness and wholeness. God, we we pray today that you would restore our enemies back to you and may that restoration to you bring restoration to us. Forgive us when we tell ourselves a story about the others. Help us see ways in which we can move towards them instead of away. And God, we just pray for your grace. The more grace we have from you, the more grace we'll see in the world. And God, we pray for that today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.